Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Two Drunk Fans. But technically, there are three drunk fans. Well, in varying levels of drunk. Uh, I'm here with Mark Shawhan and Sarah Gerke. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves and who you write for? Hi, everybody. I write for the Soccer Wire. I am the sober fan on this Three Drunk Fans podcast. Uh, I'm the sober writer on this podcast. I write for... I write for the Soccer Wire and the Soccer Desk, and yes, uh, one beer to get the courage to come on to talk with these two. I'll admit to it. So here we are at the NSCAA convention in Philadelphia. The NWSL draft is tomorrow as of record date. Um, but first we're going to talk about the U.S. Women's National Team. There's been a little bit of movement lately. There was a full national team camp run concurrently with a U23 Plus camp that had a lot of overage players in. And of all the players called in, the only one retained was Boston College's Steph McCaffrey, who's a forward. Gerke, I, I see you, like, scowling at me from over. You're, like, penetrating me with Supergirl laser beam eyes. <laughs> so you obviously have thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to think the best of that decision. So my best-case scenario is either A, Abby Wambach needed to fly to Zurich, uh, and Steph is just, you know, playing the role of a forward while she's gone, or maybe she's being converted, uh, you know, to a right or left back. We need we, we need more options. Uh, if she was called up for any other reason, I'm unbelievably disappointed that they wouldn't use the opportunity to call up a player from the overage camp for positional needs, uh, like defensive midfielder. I think that Tori Huster has had you know two wonderful seasons in the league. I think she has the mobility that maybe Keelan Winters doesn't. Of course, I think Keelan Winters is a good player, but I think Huster has an element of speed that Keelan just doesn't. Uh, so I think that would have been uh, a good call up. I think there are some other outside backs in the U23 camp who could have also shown at, at the senior level. So I'm gonna hope for the best and you know, I still have my opinions on what I think is happening. So if Gerke is going to be the uh, polite, optimistic one, I think it's my role to say there is no way that there is a good reason for calling in McCaffrey rather than uh, a defensive midfielder, a defender, or anybody else. Forward is not the position of need right now. And while it may be the case that McCaffrey had a great camp and is going to be a good person to have in camp and is going to get drafted high tomorrow, she's not the player that they should be looking at right now. Okay, not McCaffrey. Gerke gave us her opinion. Who do you think out of the 23-plus should have stayed? I, I think Tori Huster would have been someone to look at. I think, uh, and this is something that I've said before, that Sarah Killian would have been someone to look at at defensive midfielder as someone who has shown an ability both to be the, the person in front of the back four that we don't have right now, and also to have a, a passing range. And Jill Ellis has talked a lot about having someone uh, in the defensive midfield role who can pass, who can pass to the flanks, who can spray the ball uh, various places. That is the theoretical justification for putting Lauren Holiday there. And Killian has shown both at UCLA and with the U20s that she has that kind of touch and range 
in addition to her defensive abilities. Well, assuming that none of the players you mentioned make it onto the team, which I think is a safe assumption to make, not even not even Steph McCaffrey. So assuming that the team we have now, which is a pretty safe bet, is going to the Women's World Cup, where do you think the United States is going to place with that team? Well, I don't think it's a question of the personnel. I think it's a question of the coach. And with this coach and this set of uh, approaches and tactics, I think the U.S. is going to do no better than the quarters. I think that 2015 is going to bring some changes in personnel, especially with the uh, improving health of Alex Morgan. So I think potentially we'll see a shift from the 4-3-3, maybe back to that 4-4-2. And with that, they might find some additional success if maybe they are able to better set up the system and the players that they have because even if you want to take a really narrow look at who's available I think that you know there's a team there that could go to the semifinals or you know soccer is a crazy game they could get to the finals I think if they continue to play the way they have I think quarterfinals is a good bet unfortunately okay so you think we're going to go back to the 4-4-2 because the 4-3-3 has not been the critical top 10 hit that Jill Ellis has tried to push it as. So why do you think the 4-3-3 was a failure? Because as we saw, when they play 4-3-3, they still devolve into a long ball, try to pop it into the box, not a lot of possession. Like, what do you think are the major factors in that? Is that a coaching failure primarily? Or do you think it's players falling back into bad habits and not able to adjust to a modern game? So I'll answer briefly before passing it over to Mark, who is very passionate about this topic. I think ultimately because the U.S. doesn't have a strong defensive midfielder, they have to have four players in the middle of the field to have any hope of controlling the midfield because ultimately they're probably going to have two players centrally who are kind of doing half defensive mid responsibilities and you need to have them both there in order to, you know, get that done. I think in a 4-3-3, when you're only leaving one player back there, it really leaves the back four exposed. And I think what you saw happen with Brazil uh, would happen again with any you know proper opponent. And so I think they need four because they don't have a true defensive midfielder to own the middle of the field and really have any sort of hope of maintaining the possession that they often say they're looking for. I think to some extent, though, Numbers and and formations are overrated in terms of what makes the difference. Because if you looked at the the positions on the field that the U.S. often found itself in, they were almost playing a version of a 4-2-4 because you would have a couple of midfielders staying back and Carly and uh, all of the forwards would grab the penalty box and there was a great big hole in the middle. And it was less about the fact that they were in a, a nominal 4-3-3 and more about the fact that for whatever reason, coaching, personnel, whatever, probably coaching, they weren't uh, in a position to support each other in, to maintain possession and to create proper spacing in the penalty box. And I think some of that, now that I say that, is coaching because as uh, Carly Lloyd told uh, Jen Cooper last week, uh, the she has gotten a green light to go forward and to, to roam uh, from Ellis that she didn't have before. She doesn't have to stay in the middle and do the dirty work. 
See, so I'm sorry to jump in, but now you're sounding like Jill Ellis. In, in almost every post-game interview, she's talking about how she doesn't feel that, you know, systems and, you know, the title of 4-3-3 or 4-4-2 are adequate to describe what she's doing and how ultimately those don't matter. Rather, it's positional roles and fulfilling responsibilities that's important, which is why she refers to the 6, the 8, the 9, etc. And what I would argue is... The system that I described, yes, could nominally be a 4-4-2, but it, it is about the roles that those players are fulfilling. And so I, I still think it comes down to coaching, but it sounds like the roles that she's assigning to players, either A, aren't being fulfilled, or B, the roles that have been assigned are not enough to accomplish or organize in a way that can accomplish what their vision is. So I, I agree about the systems, but you're sounding actually a lot like Jill Ellis. Well, I, I think, though, that the, the issue is not what I sound like, because Ellis, <laughs> Ellis talks a very good game, and she's right about the fact that, that numerals... I mean, someone asked Pep Guardiola once about what formation, and he said, look, these are just phone numbers. Like, the, the, the numbers don't matter particularly. What matters is how you set up and and what what your spacing is like and what your passing and possession is like. Roy Hodgson also doesn't believe in a number of setups, so not, not all great coaches. Sarah has just compared Pep Guardiola and Roy Hodgson. And I'm, I'm saying it's ends of a spectrum. Extremely tactically talented. Co- coaching is a spectrum, Mark. I it's see. Not- all, all of this talk about the 4-3-3 and the 4-4-2, whatever, it, at, at a certain point, that isn't the question. The question is, are the players on the field being set up in a way that allows them to maintain possession, to uh, avoid counterattacks, to effectively move the ball around, drag the defense out of position, and, and all of that. And obviously, as, as we have seen so far, uh, under whatever the setup that, that they've been trying so far, whatever you want to call it, that has not been the case. And whether or not you have three nominal forwards on the field or two, or whether you have nominally three people in the center of midfield or two and two wide players, whatever, at a certain point, unless something fundamental changes in how Ellis is telling them to play, personnel, the, the numbers on the field won't make a difference and nothing will change so do you think this is more a case of ellis ellis has a plan like a cylon but she doesn't have the right tools or she's not maximizing the tools that she does have in the most effective way i think that there is i i I think it's a case of not maximizing the tools um if i could go out on a limb and say with the personnel that was in the senior camp and the u23 plus camp the U.S. could have a team that could go to the final of the World Cup. I, I don't think they will. In fact, I, I think it will be far from that, and that's because I don't think they're being coached properly, and I don't think either in terms of the style that Ellis wants them to play or her ability to execute a style effectively, because if it's more direct long ball soccer to the people up front, we saw a much better version of that under Pia. And so she just does not, I think, have the ability to organize the set of players that she has who are of a very high caliber and get the most out of them. One of my favorite anecdotes uh, about 
player decisions and choosing where to play, play players in the past from Coach Ellis is when Crystal Dunn was with the U-20s before they actually won the World Cup, she played Crystal as a center back. Anyone who's coached Crystal, including conversations with Mark Par Parsons, Anton Dorrance at UNC, and, and I mean, even in speaking with Crystal myself, I asked her before the, right after the draft last year, where do you think you'll play for the spirit? She's like, you know, I can really play anywhere. I just want to help the team. But I know one thing. I play on the outside. That is where I excel. I am not a player who plays in the middle. And so I think that's one example, a, a glaring example of, you know, some mismatching of, of where a player is suited to play and where in the past Ellis has chosen to put players and you know Crystal's a world-class talent I've you know I've heard and and I believe that she was one of the best central defenders in that tournament however just because she's one of the best in that position doesn't mean that you're maximizing her utility for your team in that position and I think you know that's what I would argue is happening with uh, Lauren Cheney as a defensive midfielder and so I think there are a lot of examples of player choices or coaching decisions that she's making and how she's playing different players that just doesn't maximize their utility. That was the 2010 under 20 national team, which went out in the quarterfinals. So this talk about Jill Ellis, she's not quite maximizing the, the full potential of her team. Well, then is it like a tactical or technical problem where the players just can't do it? like physically are unable to do it they're they're not at that level or they're not I don't want to say at that level but they're not they didn't choose that skill branch if you're if you're a gamer you'll understand what I mean um or is it purely a mental thing where they're just so used to something that there's nothing that can kind of knock them out of the way things were and if it is a mental thing do you think that bringing veterans in like Michelle Akers would be useful at all or if something else would help it, it, it's sort of hard to say from the outside, but it seems less a case of lacking mental strength or lacking security or confidence or whatever the heck this winning American mentality thing is supposed to be, and more a case of not being put in the right places and not knowing what they're doing or what they're supposed to do or how to do it effectively. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think there's some concrete evidence that the players really do have the mental strength and almost, I guess, flexibility to really to adapt to different situations. I think Kristen Press is a great example. She went from playing in Tiraso, went to the Champions League final, had a great game, had to deal with her team folding while they were on their Champions League run, and they still had that great of a performance. Then she came into Chicago mid-season, and you know what, had a great season. She was scoring about every other game. She was a huge playmaker for the team, and I think that shows a tremendous ability to adapt and perform under pressure, and I think other players have shown that in different capacities, whether it's they were traded or it was high-pressure situations. You know, obviously, I, I was the one who, who released the interview with Akers when she talked about the fact that she felt like veterans could bring a lot to the table in teaching uh, the team mental toughness and a winning mentality. And w with all due respect to, to Michelle Akers, I think that she's underestimating 
the importance of the technical and tactical side of the game because, you know, understandably, she's never played at a time when it's been as important as it is now. So I think that there's just kind of that experience gap where when she was playing, it was an incredibly important element to succeeding on, you know, the world stage. I think that's a little bit less relevant now, especially with the rising importance of tactical, technical. Uh, and so I think it's a little bit a misdiagnosis of why the team is struggling. Though I, I understand she's trying to explain it, and to her that seems to be a, a reasonable explanation. But I, I, I think looking at where the game is now, that's probably just not the case. I think the other point to mention is the notion that Jill Ellis is more of a player's coach. Uh, I think that's a problem, not uh, an advantage. And it's not a situation where you put the best 11 players out on the field and they use that patented mental strength and know-how and determination and, and never give up and everything will work out because, well, gosh darn it, we're America and people like us or something. It's, you, you have to have a plan. And I don't think they have a plan, or if they do, I don't think they have a good one. And however strong mentally, however much of that they have, if they don't have a plan, they're going to get beat. Speaking of a gap, tomorrow we're going to be seeing a new generation of players. I think that this, this draft for a while now, we've seen players who are fairly well divorced from the last generation, like the 99ers. I think starting around kind of that Sid LaRue, Kristen Press, Crystal Dunn era, we're seeing players who are U.S. Women's National Team 2.0, their, their next generation. Morgan Bryant's going first. Congratulations, Houston Dash. Uh, unless we have a Zakia Bywater situation. I, I, I Somehow that seems unlikely. That's the kind of thing where you walk in and you bet on that like $5, and then Brazil gets beat by Germany really <laughs> badly, and you walk out with $30,000. <laughs> I mean, there seems to be a consensus about the first four picks. Okay, so there's probably not going to be a lot of surprises in the first round anyway. Uh, in that case, so I'm a Boston Breakers fan. Gerke is... Um, I am located in D.C. and cover the spirit. Yeah, and Mark goes for FC Kansas City. So who, do you, who would you want your team to get? Who do you, what is your like, ultimate goodie basket except you know, human beings, not fine soaps and chocolates. Morgan Bryan to the spirit in the fourth round. <laughs> that, that was Sarah Gerke boldly predicting Morgan Bryan would fall to the fourth round of the draft only to get snapped up by the spirit in the ultimate bargain. The fourth round in the NWSL draft has had honestly minimal impact on the league. I think the, the best you can do is probably pick a local player who can come into camp with your team so you really have time to probably evaluate them and possibly have them stick around for amateur call-ups throughout the year. The odds of a fourth-round pick making your roster are just slim. So what you're best off doing is, I guess, expressing your interest. So for the, for the games that the national team players are missing, you have an adequate player to call up as your amateur. I, I do feel obligated to channel Jen Cooper here and point out that Jordan Jackson went in the fourth round for the dash and has There is an exception to every rule, Mark. Uh, for myself, I think we need defenders, whether that's potentially a fullback, potentially another center back, and we could use uh, a forward because at least one of our forwards is going to be sitting on the bench for the national team, namely Amy Rodriguez. Maybe. 
maybe Seth McCaffrey is really good at sitting on that bench. You don't well, know. Well, hey, if it should be that, that we would have reason to know that uh, Amy Rodriguez uh, is not going to go to the World Cup, frankly, I, I would rather see her playing for SC Kansas City than sitting on the bench for the national team. You don't know. She might, this whole shilling name change, even though she says she's going to keep going by Rodriguez, it could confuse Jill Ellis just enough to get her back onto the field. Well, it certainly confused all of the people who are reading the allocation list. Real talk. When you looked at the allocation list and you did not see Amy Rodriguez for, like, you know, a couple of seconds, were you ready to just flip over your table? I, I will say it was only a second. <laughs> I maybe pay a slightly closer attention to Amy Rodriguez's personal life than the two of you, so it was, like, a tenth of a second before it registered in my mind that she married some chilling dude. Because you remember she did that video with Heo where they got married, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We got married, not to each other. Please, this is women's soccer. There's no gays in women's soccer. They're just cousins. We, 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 no, no, no. They're good friends. Gal pals. They're gal pals. So uh, my ultimate get for the Boston Breakers, who are going ninth in the first round, would be Sam Mewis. But she's not going to, somebody's going to take Sam Mewis before nine. As someone who watches the Breakers more closely than I do, uh, do you think, given that they're just not going to get her during the draft, that they'll try to make a move to get her either prior to the season or kind of make it their season mission to get her there? I mean, I could see it. I don't want to – I don't even, like, 80 or 90% feel it. I, I see the, a strong chance of it happening, especially since she's a local and she trained with a – she came up through the Breakers Academy system. She trained with a, those teams a little bit. And I know the general manager has been very keen on her. So I could see it happening. Do you think you'd have to give up Alyssa Nair to get her? Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. The only other thing that I really that has really been on my mind has been maybe I'd like to see the Breakers pick up a third goalkeeper. And I think the top two How are gonna score goals next season. The Breakers have a lot of draft picks, all right, Gerke? Uh, also, the Breakers have bought every Brazilian forward out there. Whether any of them will actually score any goals remains to be seen. Yes, but we have three Brazilians on roster now. I think two forwards and a midfielder, I think, by position. So I, I think what Thrace is trying to say is someone needs to give Jamie Kranich competition, and that someone may be Jordan Day? No, I think I think of the goalkeeping options... Who I would prefer to see picked up is either Rowan from UCLA or Sabrina D'Angelo. So this is actually something I've been wondering about because I've seen a couple of reports saying, okay, there isn't that much demand for goalkeepers. Nobody seems to need a goalkeeper. So they're not really going to... It's but not that they don't need them. It's that I think you can invite the keepers to your preseason and just work them through that way. I think the demand is low enough. They'll shake out amongst the teams that need them. Right, so then the question is, if that's right, which I, I think Gerke may have a point. Also, I think Western New York Flash is going to draft Rowland. But so the, the question is, if the, the Breakers have the, the option in the second round of drafting a goalkeeper to provide competition for, well, their backup goalkeeper, is it worth it? And I think there are enough gaps in enough places that it's not. They need help in the midfield. They need help at fullback. Yeah, but this was a question about goodie baskets, and goodie baskets aren't full of what you need. They're full of what you like. <laughs> so, in other words, suck it, Mark. All right, we, we, we have a, a, a prestigious podcast guest. Welcome to Two Drunk Fans, Jen Cooper, a.k.a. Keeper Notes. Say hi. 
Hi, I'm so excited to be here. So thrilled. I thought this moment would never come. Finally, it's happened to me, and I just can't. Anyway, so the question is not who do you, who does your team need, but just in your ultimate fantasy world, who do you want the dash to get from the draft? No, Morgan, besides Morgan Bryan. I think we need a keeper, and this hasn't been talked about very much, but you know we're probably not going to see Aaron McLeod until July. So you're going to have Bianca Henniger step up and be number one. And yeah, we have a couple of reserve keepers, but amateurs who are strong, but I really think you need that third keeper. I don't know if Randy feels the same way. To me, to me, it's a really big, big, big risk knowing that, you know, an injury to a keeper that can't generally play through an injury. You generally take the keeper out. And I'd hate to see us in a position where we had two amateurs on the bench. That's just me. We know I'm biased towards keepers. So I'm thinking if Kate Rowland were for some reason still available, that's my random warped fantasy pick. So that's who we wanted. But as we all know, women's soccer, a lot of times you neither get what you want or you need. You just get pain and suffering. Ladies and gentlemen, the Boston Breakers fans. Wow. Wow. On that note. Can I add a commercial plug on that note? For all you all you fans out there who like uh, goalkeepers, I can get you NWSL goalkeeper jerseys. I actually run a soccer store. They're not something that are mass produced, but we can make them. So if you want an NWSL goalkeeper jersey, email me, Jen, J-E-N, at soccerforall.com. And that's the number four. All right, there's your commercial plug for the podcast. We've hit the big time. We've got yeah. commercials. Give an ad. Jen just slipped me 50 bucks for, for the commercial. <laughs> So I think we should switch to bold prediction time, which is make one prediction about something that you think is going to happen at the draft tomorrow that maybe is unexpected, whether that's uh, a mid-draft trade happening, uh, maybe it's a a player that you would have never expected, whatever you'd like to predict. Here's my prediction. Portland doesn't have any picks left, and that is because uh, Laura Harvey will be annexing Portland as a reserve team for Seattle. She orchestrated it in the offseason. So there you go. Update, has Laura Harvey made a trade today? Emphatically, yes. That is the best bold prediction ever. I, I mean, I don't even think I should even try. But I know I've enraged Portland fans everywhere, most of all my usual podcasting partner, Gab. But if I'm going to be honest, I only did it to fuck with her because... Because that's who you are. Yeah. I would say my bold prediction is that Western New York Flash is going to take all of their 10 million first-round picks and, like, give them to the Washington spirit. You know, I was just going to say that Sky Blue on past evidence would do something weird after their sec- after the, the first-round pick. But given what's come before, I don't feel like I can well, say anything. I think what would be weird would be not drafting to fill the hole, the giant hole that they have in midfield now that Sophie Schmidt isn't going to play for them. Now, keep in mind that Karen Jennings-Gabara has never been drafted, so I think she is eligible for the draft. So Jim Gabara could draft his own wife, who we all know was the Golden Ball winner from the 1991 Women's World Cup and doesn't live very far away. I mean, she coaches in Annapolis. There is one problem with that idea, though. Uh, I've been reliably informed, given that she is in Maryland, that the Spirit have put in a discovery player claim, there and therefore... My, my bold prediction is twofold. First off, the new commissioner of the league will wrap his introductory speech to the room just to show that he, he has a fun side. He has a personality, and that he's bringing that from MLS. So that's going to be the first time we see Jeff Plush uh, address the league. My follow-up prediction is that... Uh, 
Paul Riley and Mark Parsons, you know, two English English men, are going to, you know, have some tea, have some biscuits, maybe, you know, walk around and just bug the other teams for the majority of the draft because they have nothing better to do. All right, these have been bold NWSL draft predictions for 2015. We are recording these before the draft, so even though you won't hear them till after the draft, right? Probably. So thank you to Mark and Jen, and I guess, Sarah, you're all right. So that was my weekend in Philadelphia. It was long and exhausting, but really fun. I'm so jealous. Ugh, I'm having a great weekend, too, but it's a vacation weekend, not a uh, woe-so fantasy weekend. So. so I was also in the press area for a lot of the coaches' interviews after the draft. I got to listen to coaches Waldrum, Tom Durkin, uh, Vlatko Andonovsky, and Laura Harvey. So first up is Randy Waldrum, coach of the Houston Dash. Draft time's always a flurry, you know, of these kind of things that, that, that happen. And uh, so I'm pretty excited about, you know, obviously the number one pick with Morgan Bryan that everybody knows. And I couldn't be happier with that choice. She's going to have a huge impact in our, our team this year, as, as you all know her well. And then we're waiting just to get word on our the trade we made with Portland. I wish I could tell you who it's for, but we, we, we want to get a hold of the player first. Uh, and let them know that the trade's been made before we announce it to the media. With this day and age of social media, it would be out before we could get word to her. So we should be able to disclose that pretty quickly. But I'm very excited about that move as well. And then, you know, we, we needed some help in the back, and I was surprised there, there were three good center backs still left on the table. And as it was going through the end of the second round and into the third round, we, I actually tried on a couple of occasions to make a few moves to, to bump up to get one of the center backs. And... Fortunately, the way it fell, you know, Carly was still available um, in that in that fourth round. So I'm really, really pleased with her. She was the conference defensive player of the year, you know, at Central Florida. So, um, so I'm real pleased with the thing, the way things worked out for us. Where do you expect uh, Morgan's going to play for you positionally? Well, she'll you know, she'll play in an attacking midfield role at some point. You know, we. Typically, my, my system's in a, in a 4 3 3, but we may, we may have to tweak that a little bit this year based on all the attacking players we picked up. You know, a, a Rosanna from Brazil and, and, and a Carly Lloyd, and, and now, a, a, you know, a, a Morgan Bryan, and we got a Rachel Axon from England. We got a lot of attacking players, so we may have to play with our shape a little bit, but she'll be in some kind of an attacking role for us. You could potentially be missing both Morgan and Carly for the U.S. Um, how, how do you think you'll cope with that? Well, I think all the teams are in the same boat. You know, I think we have a few more. I think maybe us in Chicago are hit hardest with the most players leaving uh, for World Cup, World Cup duty. But, um, you know, you're trying to build two rosters, one that can, can, can kind of get you through that first month and a half or two months. And, um, you know, unfortunately or, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, our players come from Brazil, Canada, and the U.S. Three countries that will probably go real deep into the World Cup. So, uh, you know, we're expecting to not have those players for, for pretty much two full months. And so you just try to build as strong as you can to get you through that first part of the season. So I think not only the draft picks, uh, but some of the trades we've made. You know, a lot of people wondered why, for example, we, we traded an Ari uh, uh, Romero, you know, earlier in the year to pick up Nikki Cross. Well, at one point, we were going to have as many as 11 players gone to the World Cup, and we couldn't field a team of pros. So, you know, you had to make some moves with some players to make sure you've got a team on both ends. So it's been a little bit of a difficult end for that. So I think Waldrum had a good point, and we've all been thinking about it, in that you, you're you essentially going to have multiple squads this season. 
I think you're going to have three different builds. Your pre-World Cup, because you're aware people are going to be gone. Your during World Cup, people are gone. And then your after World Cup, when everyone comes back and you're like, well, I guess I have an embarrassment of riches. Well, some teams. Now what? Well, which is which is going to be weird because uh, NWSL rosters are still at what twenty people. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting to to hear um, the the interview that, that you were able to get, um, or or the responses that you were able to get because uh, it's something that we're thinking about, and obviously a big puzzle piece for them as well. And to only have twenty players and have to figure out which ones are actually going to be able to leave school early and play, which ones are going to be available during the World Cup, which ones are going to be, you know, he, I, I can't imagine moving all those pieces. I would love the opportunity. I wish that there was a NWSL version of the, the football manager game um, to be able to, to play around and, and try and figure that out. But man, it's, it's fun listening to these interviews. Yeah. My one thought um, before we move on to another coach interview is, I wonder if any players might be worried because all the teams are going to be calling up reserves or amateurs and all those kids are like, this is my shot. You know, normally I would never get a look. I would just be stuck training with the reserves. But now if I prove myself and I'm going to have a lot, like a whole month or so to do it, maybe even if not this season, but I will be laying groundwork to maybe be on the full team full time. So I wonder if anybody leaving for the World Cup is worried about their spot. I mean, I guess... They're probably more worried about the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that might be <laughs> preoccupying the, the, most the of world, their thoughts. The World Cup might be keeping them. Like, yeah, <laughs> but I think in the back of their mind, some of them might be watching and th- and you know keeping an eye on who's doing well and who's not. Maybe not like in a mercenary way, just being like, you know, this is who I have to work hard against and be better than. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think this is uh, providing a great opportunity for NWSL teams to really build out those reserves. Um, it'll be great if we start seeing more reserve teams being put together and uh, participating in in the lower divisions. It, I think you hit the nail uh, on the head with it's an opportunity for so many players that wouldn't have gotten a second chance. Um. So next up, we have Coach... Tom Durkin from the Boston Breakers. Your favorite. He's your favorite. Uh, this year we made sure that everybody was going to come in and that they're all available in March. So you spoke to everybody? Yes. Say you took beforehand or what the yeah. general sense of what, who else you got and what roles? Um, I think, uh, you know, I think the sleeper is the Sam Lofton. Uh, so she, you know, we will now have seven left-footed players, which, you know, it's a far cry from where we were last year. Uh, so we're going to have pretty good balance on our team, but I think she is, uh, you know, a potential impact player for us uh, in the long term. And then Bianca Brinson is a tremendous athlete that we're thinking about uh, converting into a right fullback. But her athletic prowess is off the chart, but she needs to be coached up. But again, she's coming in in March. And then, uh, you know, I think uh, I'm interested to see what uh, Jamia Fields does as a, as a professional player because her upside is really big, but... Uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it'll be a big jump, but I think she's ready for it. Um, and then, uh, you know, with the acquisitions that we had through trades and with international players, I think uh, it's going to be a really good young team. It'll be an exciting team. When you say they're all coming in, does that mean that none of them are? Will they all be in for training camp? Or yeah, they'll, they'll all be in in March. So you know, we don't have anybody coming in June or anything like that, or you know, graduation pending. So. 
Uh, they'll all be part of the preseason. So it looks right now like we'll have like a 28-player roster for preseason. So we trimmed that down already from 32. And uh, I, we'll get to the team much faster than we did last year. Lots of speed, lots of scoring, so proven goal scores from the collegiate game. Is that something that you talked about each player individually, but as a whole, is that something that you're looking for? I mean, we had we had quite a we had quite a bit of restructuring to do, so we we uh, tried to infuse the team with with younger players with a decent amount of experience, and uh, we solidified our defense. And then we have a you know certainly a, a, like I said balance with left-footed players, and then we have some very creative players and the Brazilian players that we brought in. And now we're just trying to sort out um, you know the seven and the nine. We're pretty comfortable with the eleven, so we're trying to make sure that we have. Uh, two good options at number nine and two good options at number seven. And then hopefully we can uh, groom up a, a younger player to be the right back of the future if we move Julie King inside. Did you work out the McCaffrey trade before they took her? Um, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we gave our word. So then when the second offer came in for a possible Muse deal, we had already given our word. Um, so Durkin said... A few things. One, he's thinking of converting Bianca Brinson from Texas A&M into a right fullback um, instead of just drafting a strong defender. I don't know what his thing is about converting forwards to defenders. It's not like it's an unknown practice, but maybe he just he he just needs to get good at it. <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's one of these things. Like, well, what was one of the big complaints uh, coming out of Boston last year? I mean, you you have plenty, but one of the one of the bigger complaints was lack of leadership and direction. And if you're going to convert a player um, who was a leader on her college team, you you need to be have some strength in that area. No, on the back line, I feel like Cat Whitehill was okay as as a leader. Yeah, but and, but from but from a coaching perspective, right? Oh yeah, totally, completely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, five thousand percent. I concur wholeheartedly on that one. Cat <laughs> Whitehill does does hold down. Before, yeah, and the other one is that Durkin said all their draft picks will be coming in for preseason in March. They're not going to have to be waiting on anybody, even though people will still be finishing school. So I think at least that's indication that they had some strategy in this draft, and they weren't just flailing around. <laughs> they weren't just trying to get just, uh, gobble up the top yeah. ten players. To me, that indicates he wants to create a cohesive, non-allocated player-involved squad early on and he really wants to look at his options that's what that says to me yeah no i i think boston is is slowly but surely like putting the pieces together i can't remember who in the in the previous conversation you had with uh with the media folk who said it but you know it'll be interesting to see if those if these brazilians can actually convert i think it was mark that said that because they're all like technique and and then on the american side as many many people said over the course of the convention americans are strong and fast but maybe not quite up there on the technique scale so maybe this will be like uh peanut butter and jelly you know perfect marriage it very well could be or maybe it'll be like playing like two songs at the same time that don't match up <laughs> and then the, a, a little a little bit like 2014 yeah the the oral dissonance just like makes you unable to understand what's happening. <laughs> and next up, we have FC Casey coach Flato Ananovsky, who was looking very dapper at the draft, I might add. I'm really happier with, uh, with the draft uh, this year. Of course, uh, we didn't draft uh, until uh, the 12th pick uh, overall. 
But uh, I think that uh, even if we had uh, higher picks uh, in the first round, we were still going to go with uh, with Shea. So this way it worked perfect for us. You know, we we got Shea, we got what we wanted, and on top of that, of course, we got Amy Lapelvit. So it's even though she's not part of it, I, I have to add her because that's all we got. So on, and uh, down the line, I mean, uh, we got uh, Megan Strait, uh, a player that we followed for, for a couple of years now. And I think that uh, she fits uh, she fits uh, her needs very well. Uh, Roland, uh, Caitlin Roland, I think that uh, she's got a future in this league and future internationally. Very very good goalkeeper, under 20 uh, na- uh, national team. And then uh, we got uh, Jessica Ayers and uh, Casey Clark, uh, two very crafty midfielders uh, who I think uh, fit, uh, will fit very well in our style. Lots of pa- lots of passing move midfielders. So you got especially with the collegiate players. Um, how do you see them fitting into your system? Uh, I think that uh, uh, we know Casey Clark uh, very well. Uh, she's from Kansas City. Uh, she, she played for uh, for director, technical director uh, Hugh Williams, and I've known her for for years. Uh, her mentality and her style fits very well with us. And Jessica Hires is someone that. Uh, we followed uh, for a while now. I think that uh, we'll add uh, we'll add just a little more dynamics into the midfield. Looking forward to getting out um, to a new venue, a great venue out of Swope. Um, it'll play well with our style. Yes, uh, very happy about the venue. I'm sure that uh, everybody knows uh, already. We we will play our games and, uh, games at uh, Swope Park, and most importantly for me uh, is uh, we will train at Swope Park at uh, the facility that uh, K- uh, Sporting KC trains, top notch. Uh, I mean, world class uh, uh, complex, and uh, I think that uh, it will just add to what uh, what we have already done. We train on the actual field that you'll play the games on. Uh, it, it will be available for us, so we uh, we can train on one of the four or five fields that, that the sporting has there. So I think the thing that Gab and I are focusing on with FC Kansas City is the announcement of the movement to Swope. Um, Huge. Yeah. Huge. Really nice facility. Their info says they have six turf, but three natural grass fields, so... Well, and they have access to now all of, in a partnership, or, or flirting with a partnership with Sporting KC, which is going to be fantastic. It's amazing the turnaround I did on partnerships with MLS teams, seeing now the, the mostly good relationships between the Thorns and the Timbers and uh, the Dash and the Dynamo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... MLS partnerships, I think, are are not bad, and I'm not necessarily saying that from uh, being a, a Thorns slash Timbers fan, but um, you know they they do come with their own side of frustrations because there is a, a limit to the amount of attention that the NWSL team gets in, under that umbrella. But at the same time, I mean, you you can't really complain about all the benefits, yeah. um, and I think. Uh, sporting KC, showing interest in FCKC is huge. The only thing that I would do, I was talking to Gurky actually um, this weekend about expansion and partnerships. You just want to be really careful because we've gotten burned so many times. I think that if slash when we expand to 10, because I think we're going to go to 10 and then we're going to hold there for a couple years, which is hopefully what we do. Um, you want some really, really set-in-stone guarantees from any partner. 
And I think that those mm-hmm. guarantees are easier coming from MLS teams because they understand a lot of the logistics and the risks going in rather than, you know, some random ownership group like with the Atlanta vibe coming in <laughs> and being like, yeah, yeah, we can't even can't even say it without giggling. Yeah, yeah, we, we totally understand the risk. Just here, <laughs> let's sink some money into this. And then, you know, you get a, a St. Louis Athletica situation. So after Vlatko, uh, I got to talk to Coach Laura Harvey from the Reign. They only had two draft picks, but I think she sounds Laura really fucking Harvey, man. Yeah, I also got a chance to talk to her later on, just one-on-one after her possession panel, and I asked her a little question about uh, Havana Salon. It's a long morning. Yeah. Um, not too many picks, obviously, but nope. you feel like you got what you, you know, best available or what you were looking for, perhaps? Yeah, I mean... It's difficult to get in our roster. It was always going to be difficult to get in our roster. But, um, yeah, really happy uh, with the two players that we've picked up. Obviously, you know, you sit and wait for the last pick and you're just not sure what's going to happen. So we had a lot of different variables that might go into that one. But we're pleased with what we ended up with, uh, with Kendall. Um, And I think with Havana, she gives us something that um, we didn't have, which is potential competition with some of our international players. You know, we've got probably one of the best midfields in in the league um but we haven't got a lot of depth to that so it was good to get a bit of depth to that um and i think that um i've done a lot of research around her game and who she is as a person because i think that's huge for us and someone who can come in and accept the challenge and do well at it and i think uh, i think both of these players have got a great opportunity with us continuity wise because you have such a little turnover this season yeah i mean how much will that help well, that's sort of, it's an obvious game plan from us. I think um, we, uh, I think I've said this before, we had to do a bit of soul searching after the final um, and decide, you know, what we needed to do to take that extra step to um, to win that last game. Um, and I think we would have been crazy to do another big shift of squad because um, we weren't that far away. So uh, we wanted to make sure we got as many of the players back as, as we could, which we did. Obviously, we've done a few moves and we've got a few players in, which was what we wanted. Um, and yeah, we're just happy now that we're in a position where we can move forward looking for the preseason. Are you expecting Jess Bishlock for the start of the season? Yes. Be... Yes, she was loaned to Frankfurt, and um, the deal with the loan was that she has to be back for the first game of the season. Yeah. So we'll have Jess back, Kim back for sure. Yeah. Season or preseason? Jess, uh, they have an international uh, FIFA dates like the week before the start of the first game, and um, so both Jess and Kim will be away with their national teams. I'm expecting, um, and then once they're finished with national teams, they'll fly straight out to Seattle. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting both of them back. Coach, I wanted to ask you about Havana. Do you see her more as a compliment to, or a competition for, or like as a kind of a successor to Sid Larue? No, I see her more as a complement and competition to the midfield. We have a really strong midfield. Um, but if our midfield was to get injured, the only real competition for places would be within like a holding midfielder type position with Mariah. Because um, we have Danny and Bev who could play in the 10, but it's not their natural position. So Havana was someone that we looked at as complement and could come and learn off um, the likes of Jess and Kim. Okay. Thank you, Coach. Uh, do you have anything to say about Harvey? Ah, uh, Laura Harvey. 
Laura Harvey. Just that I'm starstruck that you were able to have A, a one-on-one, and B, yeah. I'll t- I was a little bit starstruck, too. Um, Harvey was really nice when I met her, but business-like, which, it's a conference. And she had just uh, finished presenting a lot of her thoughts on possession soccer and how she implements it at the Seattle Rain. Quick question. What was Laura Harvey wearing? Was <laughs> she wearing a tracksuit? I believe so i can't remember much and i was in the back of the room because i needed a laptop outlet i will Mm. say this someone uh at the end of the presentation asked you've given this presentation and we've all been able to watch you for two years now people are are very familiar with everything that you're doing so are you gonna have to change things up and she said the key was patience even if people Mm -hmm. know what they're doing if they're patient they'll be able to maybe frustrate another team or wait them out, and then the last 10 minutes of the game, as they did so often in Season 2, remember? Like, the last 10 or 15 minutes of the game. It think, sucked so yeah, bad. You'd think they were going to end up tying or losing, and then all of a sudden, they would sleep, you know, sneak a ball in behind the back line or whatever. Apparently, that was by design. It wasn't just luck. It was them biding their time and then striking. Laura fucking Harvey, man. Yeah. So those were all the coaches that we spoke to uh, about the draft and the league in general. The last person who was interviewed was the new NWSL commissioner, Plush, and he had a lot of really good stuff to say. It's a slightly long interview, but I think it's worth it to listen to all of it. I'm curious um, whether you sought the job out, whether they came to you, how did that come about? Yeah, no, I think uh, as you as you probably know, you know, soccer is a small world. So you know, I've been friends with Dan for a long time, and obviously had the opportunity to sit with Sunil on the MLS board. And so I, I heard about it and, and called Dan, and was was really excited from really from day one. The opportunity is something that uh, very passionate about, very bullish on. Have uh, have no doubts about where we're going as a league and how we do it and how we work hard to get it done over the next couple of years is going to be what's you know, devil's in the details but but uh the opportunity was was too good to pass up and where are you going um we're going we're going to build a sustainable league that's going to be here for the long term something that people can aspire to be a part of as a player people something that people can be excited to be a supporter of as a fan um, a league that marketing partners can get excited to use as a platform to reach their customer base um, and at the end of the day i think as important as all that stuff is making sure you're a good partner in your community, a good civic partner and someone that is part of you know, being a beacon in a, in a, in a community. So um, those are the things that I think makes you successful long term. And uh, we have a lot of the things in place. Now we need to just keep working on the business end of it because I think we all know that anyone who's passionate about this sport, the product is fantastic. And so as a, as a starting point, the product is very good. And so how do we take that great product and, and turn it into a sustainable business? Do you see a, a potential for a team to come to Philadelphia? Um, I would say yes, certainly, but I haven't had any conversations with anyone in Philadelphia. Obviously, with my time with, with MLS, you know the union folks very well, know Nick very well. Um, every time I've come to the NCAA in Philadelphia, it's fantastic and well-supported and um, and pleasantly good weather every time for whatever reason. So that's been nice. Uh, no, Philadelphia's a great market, and, and uh, there's a lot of good markets. So, you know, we, we're at nine clubs. We need to be bigger than that, and we need to, to think about a geography, too. So I think we need to have a, a long-term dialogue around expansion, what's the appropriate way to do it, um, taking all things into account, geography, venue, uh, all those things, but, um, but a big Philadelphia fan. In the short term, what are some of your main priorities that you want to, achieved before the start of the season? 
Well, I think um, I think part of it is certainly having an understanding of how we want to move forward in expansion, because there is interest. There's inbound phone calls about about clubs and how what the process is going to be. So I think we need to finalize what the process looks like. Um, I, I personally need to go spend time in every market. Um, spend more times with owners. So I think um, all the foundational pieces are in place for the season. The schedule will come out. Should be not next week, but the following week. Uh, we'll have the next draft of the ownership next week. Um, so get out there and try and help the local teams monetize their sport. You know, sell more tickets, sell local sponsorships, talk about media deals. Um, so I think I have a pretty broad experience base in the the running of an organization and running of a club. Hopefully, it can be helpful in all of those things. Um, and so I, I, to me, I don't have a timeline on it because I think this is going to take it's going to take years to build things that we want to build. It, but we need to start right now with with creating the long term strategy. What's the league's biggest challenge that you're, you're seeing? Um, well, again, I've only been here uh, about nine days, actually, on the job. Um, but I think the challenge is is a little bit of, of creating that priority list of what's next. What do we need to do first, second, third? Um, because there's lots you can do. And I think I think the reality of, and I saw it firsthand on the MLS board, is that there's always a lot to do. It's because um, we're going to build the sport, we're going to grow the sport. With that comes more opportunities. Also comes more, more things and more things circling around your sport. Also that you have to deal with. Um, so as a, from a prioritization perspective, I think we need to look about how to take full advantage of the Women's World Cup, and in doing it, create a platform that is easily transferable to next year. And take full advantage of the Summer Olympics. Um, expansion is interesting, both from a uh, driving value and driving awareness, but also a 10th team, I think, operationally. I think everyone would agree that not having buys, just having everyone play every weekend would be helpful. Um, so there's some of the near-term things. And then, you know, look, I think national, national and local sponsorship, people out there not only investing their money, but investing their their heartstrings and helping to tell a story on our behalf. Anytime you have more than one person telling your story, that's helpful. You're the commissioner. Cheryl was the CEO. Cheryl was the executive director. Executive director. Yeah. How, how will that be different? Um, again, you have to live with it a little bit, but my, my belief is you know, Cheryl did a phenomenal job and did things that I she's well more equipped than I am to do administratively, really has a great experience in that from all over years in the NCAA. I'm certainly more on the, the brand, sponsorship, expansion, um, growth, uh, visioning side. That's I'll be really focusing on how we build and grow the business. And, um, and knowing that we've got great support within the federation, within the current staff, and within the teams on the technical side. And, you know, I know the sport very well, but you can always know more. There's, always, there's so many players. Uh, so it's, it's, I need to get um, more knowledgeable on the, on the women's game and the women's college game. Um, but very confident what we'll do on the business side. So. You mentioned MLS connections that you obviously mm-hmm. have from past years. Um, does that help? In, you know, we also Lake, for example, has expressed some interest in the women's side. There's been other proposed ideas of maybe they're interested. Um, does that help in seemingly that that's maybe a good direction when you look at Houston and what's happened? Well, I think it's, it's certainly anytime you have. Um, people that are interested in, in coming on board who have infrastructure, 
not just physical infrastructure like a stadium, but also human resources that they can deploy immediately to understand the business, understand all the positives, also understand the hard work it takes to be successful. That's only positive. It doesn't just have to be MLS. I mean, there's there's some very very strong NASL clubs out there now. Um, we've had a lot of I've had a lot of people reach out to me since I got the appointment. Um, so it helps also that I've got relationships there and, and have a shorthand you know, knowledge and understanding of how they are as a person and how to deal with them. And so it's, it's been it's been nothing but positive. And as you guys know, you, you cover the sport, almost without exceptions, good people who want the sport to grow. And I think that's the kind of people you want to, to build your business around. Awesome. Awesome. Like marketing, um, you know, anybody who has words to get out there, he wants them to get their word out there, comes from a strong MLS background. So there's a lot of connections there. Yeah, it, it was just all around like he just gave gems. What I really liked about his answer was not once did he mention, you know, we got to do this for little kids or all the girls who love soccer, blah, blah, blah. He gave some straight up real talk business answers. Yeah, and that's yeah. what we need. He's, he's he's developing a legit strategy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm optimistic based on this interview with Pledge. We'll see. At the time, he said he's only nine days on the job, so let's maybe see what's you know what it's like ninety days from now. Nobody break him. Let him let him grow. He's a, he's a little seedling. Let him grow and flourish and see what he can do. I hope I hope nobody breaks him. Well. That was the NSCAA or NISCA 2015 convention. It was my first one, and I gotta say, I'm, I'm I feel like I'm addicted now. The next one's gonna be in Baltimore. I'm extremely jealous. I'm super happy that you got to go. I would love to go to one of these, maybe next year. But you set the bar really high by uh, <laughs> going in and getting getting a press pass for the whole thing. Way to way to try to legitimize our dumb podcast. <laughs> Yeah, it was our very first interview with anybody with Laura Harvey. Pretty auspicious. <laughs> who who wasn't who wasn't also media. We're baby steps, man. Baby steps. It's it's not going to be like this every episode, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, d- 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 let's lower everybody's expectations right now. We we just we just came off of the serial episode. Now you're giving us interviews. Yeah, uh, from here on. <laughs> the next one will just be you and me. I don't I don't know what people are going to expect. People who are listening to this. If we have any new listeners, for God's sake, lower your expectations. <laughs> Please. Please. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be solely disappointed. I know that women's soccer fans are used to disappointment, but really. <laughs> uh, you, you gave us some good stuff. Uh, a lot of stuff to, to think about. And I'm sure um, we'll we'll be thinking and talking about this over the next couple of weeks. We've got the uh, NWSL camp is going on. Yeah. Um, Algarve is going to be Cyprus. coming up right around the corner. Uh, Cyprus and two U.S. friendlies at least. Yeah. <laughs> Plus yeah. some so, other international So friendlies. we've got a lot of international action coming up as well as uh, preseason camps for, for NWSL. See you next episode.